another week has passed by and it hasn't gotten any better for the Mets, more disasters for the team from Queens. Absolutely. I never would have believed they'd be this far under 500 or even under 500 based on that 101 wins last year. Same players back and they're playing totally differently. Yeah, it's not been good. We'll delve into that. We'll talk about the toe injury that won't stop giving us news that belongs to Aaron Judge and Fahan Zaidi, the president of the baseball operations of the San Francisco Giants will join us if you stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. John, it's uh, Groundhog's Day. You and I are back doing a podcast, and uh, look, it, it feels parochial, uh, it feels New York-based, but it's hard to avoid talking about the New York Mets. It's the largest payroll ever by not a little, and it's therefore turning into the biggest disaster ever. Uh, and it's another week of me just saying to you, can you believe it, and what do you think? No, I can't believe it. I, I'm not sure they're the biggest disappointment in baseball. I guess it's either them or the Cardinals. I think the Padres have been a bit unlucky. They've got a positive run differential. They lose all their one-run games, All the, in fact, all of their extra inning games. The Mets have just frankly been bad. I've, I've lost track. Are they seven or eight under? I think they might eight be eight under as eight we're doing under. this. I mean, they, they've just been very bad. Uh, there's nothing more that you can say about that. The pitching has been woeful. The offense has been not as good as we thought. Defense has let them down lately. Uh, there's really nothing you could say. I mean, they won 101 games last year. It's been a shocking season. I mean, we see the Reds now in contention. They lost 100 last year. Uh, I mean, this year obviously has almost nothing to do with last year, except the Braves are good again. That's about it. Yeah, you know, John, as we're speaking, just to put a finer point on it, eight games under 500, it's 35 and 43. It's the fourth worst record in the league. You know, let's stop talking about the top. They're going to try to have to avoid the very, very bottom here. Fangraphs has them at 12.4% chance to still make the playoffs. By the way, Baseball Reference has them down at 4.3% to make the playoffs. And I, John, I think you basically hit all the points. It's it's hard to win baseball games, any singular one, much less run off the kind of streak they're going to need if your starting pitching is no good, your relief pitching is no good. And we're seeing this cascade, right? Even when they get a good start, it isn't a long start. And then you're asked for a short bullpen with not a lot of trustworthy folks in it to try to bridge 8, 9, 12, whatever number of out with a defense which is ordinary at best and run scoring apparatus that is ordinary at best. It's none of this is in the top 10. Base running that, again, is not in the top. They don't do anything in the top 10. How are they going to run off a big winning streak? Well, I, apparently nobody thinks they are. Let's split the difference. I'm going to say it's probably about 8%. I think that's probably a fair number for them to make the playoffs. And, uh, you know, we we, we uh, texted earlier and we went over, who, who do we blame? And although we didn't uh, say we blame, uh, I'll ask you who you blame. I've got my list of four in order of who gets the blame well, here. So start us off, I mean, John. It's pretty sad. We're already doing the blame game and we're not even halfway through the season. Uh, it's quite something. Okay, I have it. Old pitchers, number one, you know, they make 43 million a year. So it's easy to blame them. 
first. Scherzer and Verlander, obviously, on their way to the Hall of Fame, but not via anything they've done this year. I've got young pitchers next. I mean, unfortunately, Peterson and McGill have taken a step backward. None of their pitching has really been good. I don't, I don't blame the pen. Uh, the Diaz injury uh, certainly uh, cost them. Uh, these guys are overworked at this point, and the Buck is trying to protect them. Some say too much, maybe, but trying to protect them. I mean, they're thin in the bullpen, so I don't blame the bullpen. They didn't make my list. It's old pitchers, young pitchers, hitters. It, to me, it's the three guys who sh- – who should be great, uh, you know, other than Nimmo and Alonzo who've been fine. And I wonder if Alonzo's fully recovered. He may have come back a little too soon, but he and Ian and Nimmo are doing about what you expect. The hitters for me, McNeil, Marte, and Lindor, I mean, they've been basically league average. Marte a little bit below probably. That's not good enough. We're talking about a guy who won the batting title last year on McNeil. Obviously, Lindor makes $341 million. Keep him back to the money, but that is a notable thing about the Mets. They are the highest paid team in history and four is the front office. Uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly who made all these decisions, but you know, obviously Billy Epler is in charge and uh, right now they're just not a good team. Uh, you know, obviously uh, Buck's not winning manager of the year, but uh, the front office has a bigger effect on what's going on with any team. So that's why I put front office four. what do you, how do you have it? Yeah. I, I, I think I generally agree. I wanted to talk about two issues that I think have affected this because it's. I think it's very obvious. You you know I I don't. <laughs> that sounds disparaging. I think you have the right list, but I want to see if I could go under it. I just want to mention two things. I know I hear so much about New York media and everything. I wonder if we actually undersold the loss of Diaz uh, and just how important he was, both in you know what he did, what it allowed others to do, what it allowed the manager to do, what it brought confidence-wise that if you were winning after six, seven, certainly after eight innings, you were going to win the game. You know, there's this question on Sunday in Philadelphia, should David Robertson be in in the eighth inning with a three-run lead when he's the only trustworthy reliever? I feel like that's playing the results. I think I've seen that a lot uh, recently. So, I mean, just that everyone has injuries. No, This is not an excuse. I mean, the, the Braves are in first place without Freed and Wright at the very top of their rotation. But I just wonder if we underplayed the loss of Diaz. And the other one I'll bring up, uh, John, is I think that their front office has done a terrible job. I think Billy Epler has thrown a bunch of relievers at the wall and none of them have stuck there. It's been bad, you know, with, whether you're talking about Leon, Hunter, Brigham, Nagosik, they've all been terrible, cost them games, et cetera. I just wonder if we underappreciate the number of changes in the front office going into this regime and into Steve Cohen and the ownership that didn't put money into any modernity to try to improve pitching, how people do it now. We are blessed, cursed, however you want to look at it, John. We watch the other team in town. Every Nick Ramirez they bring up, every Ian Hamilton they bring up, every, you know, Jimmy Cordero, Albert Abreu, like, they get key outs for the Yankees. They turn them into something. And to see the Mets' complete inability, is that utter failure by this current administration or is that calloused over years of not drafting well, developing well, uh, and, and bringing in the modernity needed, pitching lab, et cetera, to do it? Because they have no solutions inter- internally and the external answers that all worked last year haven't worked this year. Yeah, I mean, I think with the Yankees, that's a, I mean, a different issue. I think Matt Blake, the pitching coach, does a terrific job over there. And you're right about Hamilton and Ramirez and all these guys who have worked out. Uh, the Mets' bullpen is thin. You know, you mentioned Robertson is their one reliable reliever. 
I mean, everybody was all over Buck for not bringing him in the eighth rather than the ninth. And I can see that to a degree. And he, I think he was doing that more often, bringing him in for the Harpers and the Castellanos of the world rather than, you know, the lower lower part of the order. I'm not sure why he did it this time. But the problem is they have one great reliever. That's not good for a team with a 300. I've seen different numbers now. And I'm stuck with my $377 million payroll. You should have more than one great reliever. Obviously, the Diaz injury killed them. I did think he was top 10 last year in MVP voting. I'm not sure, sure if anybody else did or he got any of the votes, but he was incredible. I, You know, I, I'm not going to blame the media on this one. We wrote about it. I mean, do we want to harp on this forever that, oh, boy, oh, you know, woe is them. It's terrible, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the reality is, and we knew this early on, if they had Robertson with Diaz, they'd have the best back end in the National League. I won't say the American League because obviously Baltimore's has been pretty dynamic as well, but uh, as things stand right now, you've got you can rely on Adovino, but he's generally been average this year, and Rayleigh, who's been maybe average, maybe a tick above, and you have one great reliever in Robertson. I mean, that's like a small market bullpen, not a three hundred seventy-seven million dollar bullpen. That that's uh, the bullpen probably should have made my list. Yeah, look, I I I do think. I, I want to preface this because I think you and I have known Buckshaw Walter a long time. I think we respect his work ethic, his intellect. So I want to say it up front is his team has played technically terrible this year. So that begins to fall on the manager. But I feel the last two days, and again, we're doing this on a Tuesday. The Mets blew the big game against Philadelphia on Sunday. They lost a two to one game to Milwaukee on Monday is totally playing the results. I mean, before the game, he knows he doesn't have Rayleigh and Adovino on Sunday. He Robertson is in his late 30s. He was on fumes at the end of last season. To your point, you got one good reliever. You're just going to win a three-run lead in the eighth inning, say, let's use him here, and then we'll use whatever garbage in the ninth for the bottom of the order. I just feel like that's playing the results. How about don't hit two guys in a row? Don't don't botch a double-play ground ball, Brett Beatty. And then yesterday, like, like Drew Smith had a pitch in 10 days because of his suspension. Everyone else is on fumes. He's going to pitch in that game. And when you're trailing by one run with three at bats left at home, you've got to try to keep the game two to one to win the idea of, oh, now you're using the good relievers. I just think it's nonsense playing the results over the reality. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's fair. Uh, you know, I never like to question when a guy, when a manager is cautious with with guys health particularly if it's a 38-year-old. So, I, you know, I generally thought it was okay. He did earlier in the year use Robertson as the, against the better hitters a lot, which I thought was great, and, and perhaps he should have done it this time. If he was planning to use them in the ninth, probably why not the eighth against those good hitters? But, I mean, it's show it would show quite a bit of desperation with a three-run lead to bring in uh, – On June 23rd with your 38-year-old reliever. You one know, like- day after, and we I went to, down to Philly with my daughter, and we watched the pitch the inning in two-thirds. Now, I know it was only 13 pitches the day before, but he is 38 years old. We can't lose him at this point. You figure, you know, even the mundane reliever can hold the three-run lead. Uh, I, I really can't kill him for that. Um I mean, I guess we can second guess it, certainly, and part of it is the result. But uh, I I could see that as a second guess. I I don't have him on my list as one of the five issues. 
I will say this. They have not looked technically like a very good team, as you said, right? I mean, they made some bonehead mistakes. Of course, we see the Yankees make bonehead mistakes, too. We see a lot of bonehead mistakes, but uh, it doesn't seem like a Buck Showalter team to underachieve. Like, look at those Baltimore teams. Look how they played. Now, maybe he was blessed with, you know, Nick Markakis and Hardy, and he had great instinctual players who were you know got the most out of their ability this team is not getting the most out of its ability how do we know that they won 101 games last year with virtually the same team minus diaz i mean he's diaz is good but he's not a 30 win pitcher right yeah you uh you called the mets bullpen mundane i think they're sub mundane i think they have to climb up several la- uh, ladder rungs to get to yeah mundane. what's drew smith yeah. we we don't know i mean the guy comes back from a suspension gives up a two-run home run right away I mean, is he going to be able to pitch without all that sticky stuff? I, I'm questioning. It. I thought I thought Scherzer w- would be able to do it, and he's been he's been fine. He's actually been better since he's come back, and I, he's a Hall of Famer. Not to compare him to Scherzer, but I mean, what is Drew Smith at this point? He's back from a suspension, gives him a home run to a really all or nothing, mostly nothing guy, a guy who's mostly a defender, right? Joey Weimer. Uh, I mean, that just killed them. Yeah, uh, you mentioned the Yankees, and why don't we just uh, quickly to wrap up our A block here? We both wrote about the the like toe gate uh, this week, uh, the right big toe of uh, Aaron Judge. That's it. That's the whole story with the Yankees. <laughs> yeah, it is the whole story with the Yankees. Uh, look, uh, to their credit, I think they're eight and ten in their first eighteen games. They've kind of like, as opposed to the Mets, not like blowing off into the distance. The Rangers, pretty good team. They took two out of three. Again, I think it goes back to their run prevention and their ability to use so many guys in the bullpen to, to get guys out. But John, uh, what, what do you think about where Aaron Judge? Uh, again, we both talked to him over the weekend. We both wrote columns on him. He's pretty much the whole team. It's not supposed to be that way. What, what do you think about it right now? Yeah, what a thing that we always do is write about a guy's toe. I mean, that's kind of sad on our part. But, I mean, I, I give the guy credit for, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure that he's in great pain. He doesn't – when he walks, he, he looks, you know, better than I do, certainly. I doesn't. He's not saying ow or anything like that. He's walking, but I believe him. He is a. I believe that he's a high tolerance for pain, and he wants to be out there very, very badly. I mean, he explained to me basically that it's not turf toe because it's in a different position, uh, the torn ligament. And I didn't understand why the torn ligament became such a big thing because we knew it was a sprain. A sprain basically means it's a tear, torn. right? So yeah. I didn't get that part of it. Uh, a lot of dummies do our that- job, John. Well, uh, the fact that you ask, can you guarantee uh, that he would play this uh, year? I thought that, you know what, uh, the more I think about it, it was interesting the way he answered it. I, I, I give that some, I, I, I give you points for that. And I, I think there was something to it that Boone just wouldn't do it, you know? So, we, we, you know, we'll see. But one thing, Boone, one thing Judge said to me is that the turf toe is usually six to eight weeks this is in a different spot, which kind of hinted like maybe it'll be more than six to eight weeks. And six to eight weeks at this point would be one to three weeks after the All-Star break. So that's probably optimal at this point. So uh, unfortunately, it turned out to be a very bad injury. Yeah, look, uh, uh, we talked to Boone on sa- uh, Saturday after we talked to Judge. And I had never seen Judge as kind of downcast as he was. Now, I think he doesn't do timetables for a very specific reason. He had he got 
uh, chip fracture in his hand. I think it was in 2018. And I think right away, the Yankees say this is about a three week injury. And he ended up being out for seven weeks. And, you know, this is a serious athlete who cares about his team and being on the field. And I don't think he liked the thought of like, oh, what's taking him so long as he malingerer? So I think he doesn't want his stuff out on the street, which is why I think we never get any clarity with judge. You know, like, I think this is judge ordered not to get the clarity. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't blame him. I mean, the Yankees look at everything with rose-colored glasses. I, I, I'm not going to believe anything they say. Remember when I mean, Nick Johnson was only going to be out two days and he missed like two years for two us? Two days. Well, how about Mike Gallego? He was day-to-day -day and he missed 51 days. I remember he gained a few pounds. God, we're old. We're talking uh, Nick Johnson I, and Mike Gallego. Who remembers Mike Gallego? But I, I, do, I do remember Mike Stanley making a funny line about 20 days into this. He said, you know, he was on, on the 15 day deal. He said, what are you on the 15 pound deal? You know, you know, when you're not, when you're not playing, you might start to look a little different if you, if you keep eating, but you know, if you remember the first day, they said he was day to day. Why say anything? You don't know. At that point, they hadn't taken the test. They don't have the results. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they knew nothing. If they knew that he had a torn ligament, they tell us day to day. That's not really being honest. I think they didn't know anything. Why, why announce day to day? They're very. They look at everything very positively. Uh, you know, I almost get it with the lineup. I think. I think Boone's lineup is kind of looking through rose-colored glasses that he's putting Stanton, batting him third or fourth every day when he's. You know, I mean, they say he's streaky, right? He's in one of those bad streaks, right? So, find somebody else. I know they only have Rizzo who can bat third or fourth. Fine, guess yes. Go with McKinney. Do something else, right? Yeah, uh, they who, don't have who a lot saw the MVP Billy McKinney coming? Uh, yeah, I mean, he's actually, what, he's got about 1,000 OPS without Judge, so he's almost approximated Judge's uh, production. This not, year's Matt Carpenter. Yeah, I mean, he's been great. Good for him, and uh, that's one positive. And, and you're right, 8 and 10, that's pretty good, considering they're basically last in every offensive category without Judge as a team, not McKinney, everybody else. On John, on the subject of without Judge, uh, the San Francisco Giants, that was their big guy they were going after in the offseason. They're without Judge, and yet they're in a playoff position as we speak. We're going to talk to their president of baseball uh, operations, Farhan Zaidi, about all of that. If you stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Hayden. Joining us on the show is the president of baseball operations. I believe year five uh, with the San Francisco Giants, uh, Farhan Zaidi. Uh, Farhan, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, I'll, I'll start here. You were really kind to me in spring training. I think we sat for more than 60 minutes in your box during the game. And I was asking you a ton of Carlos Correa and Aaron Judge questions. And who's the second best player on your team after Logan Webb? And as we sit here today, Judge is hurt, Correa isn't playing well, and you have a better record than the Minnesota Twins and the New York Yankees. Uh, how are you doing it, and do you believe in it? Do you think you're a playoff team as we sit here today? Do you believe in what you've seen so far for half a season? Yeah, we do believe in it and uh, appreciate the intro, and uh, we're very excited about how the team is playing. And and look, those guys are, are great players, and there's a reason we pursued them as aggressively as we did. Um, but you know, this is professional sports and major league baseball and big free agents always have um, options and alternatives. And so we were prepared, uh, you know, with a pretty long list of targets, um, those guys included and, and probably at the top of the list. But, um, you know, we've done it with a combination of the guys we did wind up bringing in. Um, I remember your question about the second best player on the team. And I said Michael Conforto and he's given us a really nice boost in the middle of the lineup. 
And a lot of the returning players that we have, J.D. Davis, um, Thyro Estrada, Lamont Wade, are all guys that were pushing for the all-star team, deservedly so. And we've had an influx of young players over the last month, uh, led by Patrick Bailey and Casey Schmidt, who have uh, really, you know, been a nice spark for the team and and helped us go on this this run. So we believe in it partly because it's not coming from any one place. It's coming from a combination of players. And that's sort of our team building philosophy is, you know, to, to build a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts. And the guys are doing a great job executing on that. Well, congratulations on your start, Farhan. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Estrada and uh, Davis. Uh, it seems like you really have a knack for finding players elsewhere who are just doing okay or average and uh, bringing them in, and they do much better for you. Uh, I don't know if there's some trick to this. I mean, when, when you're with the Dodgers, obviously, Chris Taylor, I'm a, not going to do it justice because it's a long list. Chris Taylor, Max Muncy, I don't know how you feel about improving the main competitor that you have now uh, with all these great pickups, but uh, what is the secret to getting these kind of players? Estrada and Davis have been outstanding for you. Well, we played the Dodgers a couple of weeks ago, and and even though I really like my, Max as a Muncy as a player and a, and a guy, it didn't hurt my feelings that he was out for that series because he's really killed us. But um, you know, as a as a broader point, I think so much of it is is cultural. Uh, you know, we can all identify players who have good tools, who have strong minor league performance, and and maybe haven't gotten over the hump in the major leagues. Um, but really having patience with those guys and kind of pushing through some of the early struggles that guys have, if you can create that kind of culture, I think you can get the most out of players. So, you know, I look at a guy like Mike Yastrzemski, who we got from the Orioles in the offseason of 2018-19. He got off to a great start in AAA, came up to the big leagues, had a good first few games, then got cold. And, you know, it's kind of well known that, um, you know, right before the Colorado series where he went off and, established himself really as a big leaguer for the long run we at least had the conversation about sending him down myself and Bruce Bochy were talking through it and we said let's just kind of power through this and see what happens and and the rest is history so uh, I think having that kind of patience having a culture where you're looking to reward younger players and give them opportunities uh, that's a big key to all of that. You know, Fahan, you mentioned playing the Dodgers. You you won, I think you swept the three-game series there as part of a 10-game winning streak uh, recently, which was quite something. And I think part of the questions I was asking in spring training were based on the Dodgers are always good and look at what the Padres are doing. And yet the reality is Arizona is leading your division. You're in second place as we speak. You're 43-34. Uh, what do you think of this division? Do you still think the this version of the Dodgers, are they a Levi Leviathan and they're going to rise up at some point? And do you think the Padres talent will play at some point? Or is there a real avenue there for you to get to the top like you did two years ago? Yeah, I, I certainly think there's a, a path for us. And and those teams, I do expect the Padres to play better. The Dodgers have been dealing with uh, their share of injuries and they were shorthanded when we played them. Obviously, you know we've been shorthanded too. But uh, in the end, we think those teams are going to be there. Um but, you know, I don't know whether it's a personality trait that I have, but I've always been a very stubborn competitor. You know, I uh, back in the, the day when we used to play, you know, pick up basketball and spring training in Arizona, you know, even if I was on a team that lost two or three in a row, I'd want to run it back. And think we had enough, you know, I'd never be the guy who wanted to change teams. So, um, you know, even in a division like we are, that's really competitive and, and where there are star players kind of all over the place, um, you know, I think, and I think the 
collectively think we're just as good as those teams. And so, you know, the run that we had through the division the last couple of weeks, I think proved that point to us and, and to other people. And look, there's a lot of season left, so we're not taking any victory laps now, but we feel good about our chance to compete with those teams. And you're 10 games over at this point. I mean, what were your expectations coming in? I know a lot of people did not expect you to be a contender. You clearly are now. I know you feel confident at the moment, having seen 78 games, 78 good games. Uh, did you think so going in that you were a contender? I did. And, and you know, it, it, some of it, I think, has to do with, you know, the history over the last couple of years. Obviously, in 21, we had, you know, really successful season, won 107 games. I think people look back on our 22 season as a big disappointment, which it was, but, you know, we didn't lose a hundred games. We finished at 500. We had a plus 19 run differential. And then we went out and spent $200 million on free in free agency to improve our team. Uh, we had guys that we thought would bounce back. We have rookies that we expected to contribute. So we definitely expected to be better than we were last year uh, when we were 500. So uh, we expected to be a winning team. We expected to compete. And I think some of the headlines that some of those bigger free agent pursuits took up, maybe took away from the underlying storyline that we had a, a pretty solid, deep group of players on our roster and, and, and had a chance to do what we've done so far. As often as John was right, he mentioned you were 10 games over 500. I looked down quick. I saw the Dodger record is 43 and 34. As we speak, you're 44 and 34. I don't want to shortchange you. Uh, the San Francisco Giants, you're 10 over 500. Look, you you spent, uh, you spent you mentioned it here, uh, who you went after in the offseason, that you did spend $200 million. We'd be naive not to recognize, since it's, it's John and I, our audience is a heavy New York audience. Can you take us through, Judge? Uh, did you think there was a moment? Yep. We're going to get the biggest star who's not named Shohei Otani in the game to come back to Northern California, hit in the middle of our lineup. I think your plan was to actually play him in center field because that's what he wanted to do. Take us through your emotions and how close you were. Yeah, I don't know if it's a coping mechanism, but I I never really believed he was going to sign here. I kind of, you know, I think like with a lot of things, you kind of want to control your emotions. and. You know, and baseball is so unpredictable, both with free agency and with trades. I mean, there have been so many times when I thought a trade was at the one yard line or five yard line and it winds up not happening. So you don't really believe something's done until it's done. I mean, look, I, as disappointed as we were with the way that wound up, I, I think the way Aaron got started this season, the question is is less um, should be less you know, why, why we weren't able to sign him and, and more where the, where the other 28 teams <laughs> you know, everybody could use him with as terrific a player as he is. But uh, look, at the end of the day, I think he, he gave us real consideration. He flew out here with his wife, uh, spent a weekend with us, spent a lot of time with us. And I know there's been talk that it was leveraging this and that, but I believe the interest was sincere. And I think about, you know, big life decisions that we've all had to make, whether it was about a job or a move and, you know, you run hot and cold on it. I'm guessing there were times when Aaron thought the idea of playing for the Giants and being closer to his family was really appealing. And I mean, how can you not feel the pull of being a Yankee for life? I mean, it's a great organization. So I think he went back and forth a little bit and then wound up doing what felt right to him. And, uh, you know, we completely understood it. But, um, you know, we put our best foot forward and it was great getting to know Aaron. And he's really, you know, one of the great, great players in the game. So, I think it was just logical and sensible for us to do everything we could to land him. 
You, well, your coping uh, mechanism was logical and probably ultimately smart. Uh, I was one who thought you had a real shot for a couple minutes anyway, incorrectly. Um, I, I want to ask you a broader question. I, I love San Francisco. I've never lived there. Um, you know, I've been there many, many times, obviously, covering the Yankees, the Mets, the, before that, the Angels even. Um, why do you think it's – now, obviously, you've got – Player, you've gotten players. Jock Peterson uh, is from the area, and he knew you, so we had two pluses there. But uh, it seems like it's difficult to get players to go to San Francisco, uh, which, I mean, it's one of the best cities in America as far as I'm concerned. What do you think is going on there uh, in terms of the difficulty? Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily true. We did sign seven free agents this past offseason, obviously Jock being one of them who accepted a qualifying offer. So maybe that doesn't, you know, quite qualify, you know, as, as somebody choosing us. But, um, you know, I think we deal with the usual East Coast, West Coast um, scenarios with players, guys that grew up in the South, grew up in Florida. I think they're attracted to teams that play spring training in Florida and, um, you know, have preferences to stay on the East Coast. Um, you know, guys that grew up on the West Coast, grew up in California, um, you know, and particularly guys who grew up in the Bay Area, it's a dream for them to play for us. So, you know, I think we deal with with some of that, um, you know, regional preference based on where guys grew up, um, you know, and then you layer on that, John, you mentioned it with Jock, you know, Ross Stripling is another example, Alex Wood, guys that somebody in the organization has a relationship with, whether it's myself or someone else. Um, that really helps too. I mean, we're really trying to pitch, uh, you know, as much as geography. I mean, San Francisco is a beautiful city. I mean, it's uh, I'm biased, but I think it's the best place to live in the world. But um, beyond pitching the city, I think it's important for us to pitch the organization. Um, you know, some of what we touched on earlier, our, our ability to to help players be the best version of themselves. And, you know, we've had a number of players come through here the last few years that um, have performed really well and, and are in contracts either here or elsewhere um, you know, that I think they would say we were at least some small part of with our development system. So um, I think the overall pitch uh, is really solid and, and attracts a lot of players and we feel good about it. And we just know that there are going to be some players that prefer playing on the East Coast. And that's something all West Coast teams deal with. Farhan, you mentioned you were surprised that more teams didn't go after Judge when you saw how he began the season. I actually asked them the other day, do you think you're underpaid watching the team play without him? Uh uh, one one player who ended up on kind of three teams this offseason was Correa. All right. Uh, you had him. The Mets had him. And ultimately, the Twins had him. Look, I, I don't want to kind of be the guy who keeps going back and asking, like, how did it why did it go this way? So I wonder if I could ask a bigger question there is at the moment that you lose Judge and Correa. There is a perception that grows. Oh, the Giants are having a terrible offseason. And of course, the teams we thought that were having a good offseason were the Padres and the Mets. And look at where they are now. What does it take for the guy who's steering baseball operations to tell people who he works for, his fan base, et cetera, that this is not going to define us? We could still be a good team. And if you'd like to take us through Correa a little bit, feel free to do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think the perspective is different. You guys have a job and a responsibility to explain what happened. You know, we have a responsibility to turn the page and move on in that moment. So I would say, you know, despite you know, some of the public rhetoric and narrative around, you know, how our offseason was going. We turned the page really quickly. In fact, I think we signed Michael Conforto and, um, you know, Taylor Rogers, who's had a great season for us as well within a couple of days of, um, you know, uh, the Correa deal um, not working out. So 
we had kind of our list of targets and, and we moved on pretty quickly. You know, the narrative lingered, which is understandable. I mean, you know, Carlos is one of the greatest stars in the game and what happened with him this offseason was really unfortunate. And, you know, I'm happy he wound up in a situation that he was happy with. He was terrific, by the way. I mean, we met with him. Um, he was really impressive. He was really invested in what we were trying to do and build. And so I have nothing but the best things to say about Carlos from that process. And again, it was unfortunate how it worked out. But again, happy that he wound up, uh, you know, in a good place, in a, in a place where he had success last season and where his family is happy. And as for us, again, it was just a quick turning of the page. And obviously, I think it's necessary in this job to sometimes tune out some of the noise that comes with, oh, what happened? How do we explain that? What are they going to do now? You know, we have our internal playbook and and we move on quickly. And I think, you know, again, getting back to that notion of being a competitor, um, you know, you don't cry over spilled milk. You turn the page and you move on because, you know, your competitors are are not going to sit around and wait for you to pick up the pieces. So uh, that was very much our, our our mode internally. And, you know, I think when you heard myself or Pete Patella or Gabe Kapler talk about our team, and we've been excited about this group all offseason. And again, I think it was drowned out by some of the larger narrative. But, um, you know, again, I think that just comes with the territory. There are times you're not you're going to target a player. It's not going to work out. you got to just move on and have something else in mind. Yeah, I'm not sure you're going to answer this, but I'll, I'll give it a shot anyway. I, you, I, you named the right price for Judge. I think you were the ones who said the 360 uh, for nine, and they just matched it. Um, do you think there was some price you could have gotten them at, and uh, would you have gone higher? Because as Joel said, it, compared to what some of the other guys were offered or got, uh, he does look underpaid to us. Yeah, I, it's impossible to say. I think it's a fair question, but – I think it kind of came down, like I said, to where Aaron felt it was the right place to be. And I think he probably knew that when he presented, uh, you know, one of the teams with, hey, this is what it's going to take. Um, it's kind of hard to say no in that scenario. So, again, I, you know, two things can be true that that I think he gave us real consideration, but ultimately decided that was the right spot for him. And I think once he decided that, um, I mean, that was one of the many impressive things about the judges is I don't think they were looking to squeeze every last dollar out of the process. I think he knew what he was worth. He knew what he could get comfortably. And, uh, and then at that point it was just about choosing the right situation for him. So hats off to him for, I think going about the process in a, in a, in a really impressive and respectful way. Yeah. You didn't end up with judge in the outfield, but you ended up with another New York player, a uh, player with New York roots uh, in Conforto. You've mentioned his name a, a couple of times, I believe a two year, $36 million contract where he has the player option in year two. I think as we speak, he's got a got 12 homers. He's got about a 111 OPS plus uh, he missed all of last season due to, uh, you know, shoulder problems. What, what have you, does he look like Michael Conforto pre-injuries? What does he look like to you? I think he, he really does. I mean, he's been impressive since the first day of camp, not just swinging the bat, but obviously throwing, which was, um, you know, the biggest concern coming off the shoulder injury. It's been a total non-issue. He's played a very solid corner outfield for us, played a lot of right field where obviously the demands on your arm are greater. Um, and in our ballpark, no less, which is a big right field where you have to deal with, you know, the unconventionalness of the right field wall. Um you know, he's he's been a, a little streaky, I think, even by his own account. And there are times when I think he feels like the missed time, it takes a little bit 
longer for him to refine his swing um, when he does uh, fall out of a groove a little bit. But we couldn't ask for more. I mean, he's hitting three, four, five in our lineup every day. He's playing a lot. He brings so much consistency at, to the lineup. And, you know, again, our philosophy is to have a lineup where one through nine, we grind, we have high at-bat quality, and we just make it as difficult as possible for the opposing pitcher to, to get through our lineup over and over again. And, um, you know, I think uh, some of the talk in the offseason about us needing that, you know, quote-unquote superstar in the middle of the lineup, I think, um, you know, overlooks the fact that we just have a lineup one through nine of guys that are going to grind. And, you know, I think you've seen it with the offensive performance that, um, you know, there are synergies when you have guys feeding off each other, having those kinds of quality at bats. So, you know, for him to be a guy who, you know, cap can stick in the middle of the lineup, three, four, five every day, he's been productive. He's driving in runs, he's hitting for power and he's having good at bats, you know, and playing solid defensively. That's really all we could ask for. You know, you've done great with your free agents that you did sign. And one is Alex Cobb, who really was great for you guys earlier. So I specifically wanted to ask about him, how he's doing, and also how that may affect uh, the trade deadline. I assume you'll be a buyer and probably looking for pitching like everybody else. But uh thought I would ask you. Yeah, he, we expect him to be back uh, on this road trip. We've got Toronto and New York, and, and he's eligible in New York. He pitched a rehab game over the weekend uh, for our San Jose club and felt great. So, um, you know, it's basically he's right back in the rotation, which is which is really great to see. You know, we actually have a pretty deep pitching staff, uh, both in the rotation and the pen. Um, we've got a couple of guys, you know, Sean Manaya, Ross Stripling, um, you know, and I throw Alex Wood in there as guys that, you know, we think are really solid kind of mid rotation guys and, um, we expect them to pitch better as the season goes along. So I think the trade deadline outlook for us is going to come down to health. Uh, you know, we have a lot of internal options. When you look at starting pitching, we've got Kyle Harrison knocking on the door as well. Um, we've got three young pitchers, uh, Keaton Wynn, Tristan Beck, and Sean Jelly, who've come up and sort of pitched in that bulk role, haven't really been in the rotation where they're starting every fifth day, but we think they're capable. So there would be a high bar for us to go out and acquire starting pitching that we thought was a real upgrade over that. I know you guys have taught some about what the supply and demand looks like there. It's not great. Um, you know, if you're looking for, you know, back end, you know, a, a number five starter, that's going to be available, but I don't think we're going to be in that market. So um, our preference and our belief is that we have everything internally that we need, um, especially from a depth standpoint. And I, any team that's contending is going to look at guys who bring real impact, but Again, the supply and demand on that will be interesting, and it's really you know too soon to tell who's going to be available in that category. You know, uh, on the subject of the trade deadline, you, you had a big win last year. You, you turned Darren Ruff into J.D. Davis and three pitching prospects. And even if it wasn't the three pitching prospects, you could tell us about the quality of those. I mean, J.D. Davis, uh, the, the, the Mets would kill to have uh, someone who looks just like J.D. Davis. The problem is they had someone who looked just like J.D. Davis and gave him to you for Darren Ruff, who doesn't play with them anymore. Tell us about that trade, and tell us about J.D. Davis and what he means to your ball club. Yeah, look, I've I'm, I'm known Billy Epler for a long time, a lot of respect for Billy, and, you know, uh, what he was looking for was somebody who come in and hit in the middle of their lineup against left-handed pitching. And Darren Ruff, for us, up to that point, had really been one of the best kind of right-handed bats against left-handed pitching in baseball over the previous, you know, two and a half years. So... Billy targeted the right guy, in my opinion. And, 
you know, Darren is a guy that was really popular in our clubhouse that still filled a role on our team. And, you know, we were still within striking distance of the wild card at that time. So we weren't in pure sell mode. So, you know, we set a really high price. Um, and I know it was a tough decision for Billy, but he was trying to improve his team in a very specific area where Darren actually fit him better than JD at the time. So I completely understood it from his perspective. And it's not like we were high-fiving in the room when he made that deal. It was tough to trade Darren. Well. Um, JD was just a guy that we had liked for a long time, dating back to his time in Houston. In fact, uh, when the Mets traded for him, that was my first offseason with the Giants, and we were trying to trade for him as well. Uh, just loved the bat, loved the patience and power. And, you know, no an area where he had difficulty in New York was just defensively being consistent at third base. And, you know, tr he, they tried him some in first base and left field, and that didn't really work out. And by the way, we did the same thing when we first got JD. We kind of moved him around. We're looking for a defensive home for him. He swung the bat really well for us. And I give Kai Correa and our uh, coaching group a lot of credit. They did a lot of work with him. Credit JD for putting in the work. And I think just the consistency of just sticking him at third and leaving him there and letting him focus on one defensive position has really brought out the best in him. So, um, you know, a lot of good fortune for us in that deal, which was difficult to make at the time. And I really understand it from the Mets perspective as well. Uh, last one for me, boy, you've had a, a lot of uh, players come from New York and do well. Uh, Estrada's really turned out to be a very good player. But, you know, we've talked for 20 or 25 minutes about what a great job you do uh, there with the Giants. And I think I saw a quote, I don't know if it was from Larry Bear or some one of your bosses saying that they hope to resolve your contractual situation your future and they wanted to keep you so i thought i would ask you while you're here is that situation resolved at this point <laughs> um i i think you have a better chance of getting me to to discuss judging correa than you do my own situation we so. did get you to discuss <laughs> judging correa so. so two out of three isn't bad i mean i'm gonna politely uh, i gave it a shot what can i tell you no, I, look, I, I felt really supported by our ownership group, you know, even when some of the headlines weren't great this offseason with some of those free agent pursuits. So, you know, that's what you really appreciate is when you, you get the internal support, even when times and even when the media clippings aren't great. And so uh, I'm really happy with the Giants. Hope I'm here for a long time. And uh, getting that kind of support, it goes a long way. So uh, that's uh, that's my official comment on that matter. That's fine. That's good. That's a good answer. So, so you know, I was going to ask one more. Okay, I'll ask one more. Uh, it, it, it will be easier because, again, it's about the job you do. I don't think anybody had, like, you know who has really good prospects? The San Francisco Giants. And yet, you know, you mentioned it. Patrick Bailey, Matos, Blake Sable, uh, Schmidt. How much these guys have helped you coming up with, I think, no major league experience on any of the four people I mentioned. Uh Surprise at all. And I wonder if I could just drill down. Matos is the one guy who people thought was a very strong prospect. And so far, it's not, it's just a handful of games. Looks at, is he your center fielder going forward from now? Or when you get some injured guys back, is he going back down? Yeah. I mean, I've been asked that question. Obviously, Mitch Hanniger had a really difficult injury. We're still hoping he's back in September. But, uh, you know, the way Luis is playing, and we've said, if he, is a productive big leaguer. He's not going anywhere. I mean, he can impact the game in the field. He's played a great center field for us on the bases. And, you know, it's been really impressive the step forward he's taken with his plate discipline. The quality of his at-bats has been terrific, which was really the one thing we thought he needed to tweak um, 
you know, to get over the hump. So really excited about how he's playing. And I think he's here to stay if he continues to produce. That's sort of the view we have with all our young players. You know, I you I know you guys talk to a lot of GMs and and probably we would go 30 for 30 and all telling you that our farm system is better <laughs> than the rankings and better than people think. So, you know, I, I, the, the most validating thing is when guys come up and produce and help your big league team. That's the whole point of having a farm system. So, um, you know, I understand people that do the rankings, um, you know, they're not biased one way or another. They're just trying to be objective. And so if you exceed the expectations in that regard, that just speaks to having good player development and, and good fortune to a degree. So we're obviously excited about what we've gotten from those guys. Well, Fahan, thank you so much for going through Judge once again and Correa once again and talking to you about your team, which, again, I've got to say in spring training, you believed heavily in it. And I didn't think you were just kind of giving me the policy line. I, I As you know, I was suspicious. I'm asking who your second best player is. But so far as we sit here, half a season in, uh, you're in contention for your division lead. You're, you'd be in the playoffs today. So great job. And thank you so much for joining us on the show. Appreciate it. I figured talking to a couple of New York guys, I knew which questions were coming. So <laughs> You're well prepared, as always. All right. Thank you, guys. John, another week, another week to play hit or error. What do you got? I'm going to give MLB a hit uh, this week. Uh, the attendance is up 7.8% over last year. Uh, that's quite a bump. I think the new rules is part of that. I don't know if it's the lack of the pandemic, which is good for all of us. Uh, maybe it's all the surprise contenders. I do think the new rules are the biggest factor, and uh, that's a pretty good bump, 7.8%. Obviously, Oakland's not helping it, but the other 29 teams, well, I'll take Miami out of that too. The other 28 teams are doing a good job at getting people of the, the games. Yeah, and uh, I think they ran another successful event in London also, uh, to another feather in their cap there. Uh, for a hit or error, I, I'm going to, I don't know whether it's a hit or error. I'm going to suggest that they not make an error and they make sure that Ellie Dela Cruz is at the All Star game. Uh, I would say that the All Star game is an entertainment, a TV show. That's all it is, is a TV show, it's publicity for the sport. Uh, we have a year where Nolan Arenado and Manny Machado, who are the two obvious guys, are both way down this year. Uh, Austin Riley isn't as good as he was last year. They're, the obvious people to send are not having good years. They're, now, the finalists, I believe, are Riley and Arenado, so it's going to be one of those two to start. But just as a way to show off our game and show off the future, I would make sure Ellie Dela Cruz was at, at the uh, at the All-Star game. I'm with you on that one. Love to see Ali De La Cruz in person. I haven't seen him yet. Uh, he looks even better so far in the highlights than uh, he was projected to be. So incredible. And yes, he should be in Seattle. I think by this time, when we do our show next week, John, we should know uh, who the all-star starters are. Then you and I have to get on a plane. So we hope everyone keeps listening to the show, a podcast from the New York Post. Thank you to our producers, as always, Jake Brown and Andrew Hartz, for helping us get us through this. Don't forget the show drops every Wednesday at about noon on the Yes app. Give us a view there. Subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please give us a five-star rating. And, John, I hope they stick with us. I hope we have something else to talk about besides the Mets next week. If you stay with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Hamer.